to keep this season in our minds as a benign, peaceful time with no correlation to the tragedy that we witness in our world. We easily forget that Jesus was born into a community that experienced the horror of murdered children. And we must allow Advent and Easter to sit in tension in our own hearts because as one writer recently put it, the cross looms behind the stable, the shadow of violence, agony, and death. And this morning, we are called again to faith. And it's faith. It's not knowledge. It's not sight. It's faith. It's trust. We're continuing our series in the Songs of Hope, if I can get through it. And we're going to be looking at Psalm 107 this morning. And it's a psalm that calls us to tell our story of faith over and over again. It's a psalm that requires us to cry out. Let me read our passage for us and pray and we'll get started. This is the fifth lesson. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord tell their story. Those he redeemed from the hand of the foe, those he gathered from the lands, from the east and west, from north and south. Some wandered in desert wastelands, finding no way to a city where they could settle. They were hungry and thirsty, and their lives ebbed away. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way to a city where they could settle. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for mankind, for he satisfies the thirsty and fills the hungry with good things. Some sat in darkness, in utter darkness, prisoners suffering in iron chains because they rebelled against God's commands and despised the plans of the Most High. So he subjected them to bitter labor. They stumbled, and there was no one to help. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he saved them in their distress. He brought them out of darkness, the utter darkness, and broke away their chains. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for mankind, for he breaks down gates of bronze and cuts through bars of iron. Some became fools through their rebellious ways and suffered affliction because of their iniquities. They loathed all food and drew near the gates of death. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he saved them from their distress. He sent out his word and healed them. He rescued them from the grave. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for mankind. Let them sacrifice thank offerings and tell of his works with songs of joy. Some went out onto the sea in ships. They were merchants on the mighty waters. They saw the works of the Lord, his wonderful deeds in the deep. For he spoke and stirred up a tempest that lifted high the waves. They mounted up to the heavens and went down to the depths. In their peril, their courage melted away. They reeled and staggered like drunkards who were at their wit's end. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, 
and he brought them out of their distress. He stilled the storm to a whisper. The waves of the sea were hushed. They were glad when it grew calm and he guided them to their desired haven. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for mankind. Let them exalt him in the assembly of the people and praise him in the council of the elders. He turned rivers into a desert, flowing springs into thirsty ground and fruitful land into a salt waste because of the wickedness of those who lived there. He turned the desert into pools of water and the parched ground into flowing springs. There he brought the hungry to live and they founded a city where they could settle. They sowed fields and planted vineyards that yielded a fruitful harvest. He blessed them, and their numbers greatly increased, and he did not let their herds diminish. Then their numbers decreased, and they were humbled by oppression, calamity, and sorrow. He who pours contempt on nobles made them wander in a trackless waste. But he lifted the needy out of their affliction and increased their families like flocks. The upright see and rejoice, but all the wicked shut their mouths." Let the one who is wise heed these things and ponder the loving deeds of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as we have already asked, we ask again that you would enter our presence this morning as we sit in a world that is filled with darkness, we need the comfort of your love. Let us be reminded this morning of the darkness that resides in our own hearts. And more importantly, let us be reminded that your love has banished that darkness away. That You have called us out of the darkness and into the light. May we have trust and courage to cry out to you again this morning, we ask in your name. Amen. There I was, lying in a gutter, coming down off heroin when a street preacher talked to me about salvation. I decided to follow Jesus that day, and I haven't looked back. I had been drinking heavily for years when my daughter got invited to Sunday school by a neighbor. A few weeks later, I came to church and dedicated my life to Jesus, and he changed everything. I thought sex would satisfy me, but after feeling empty and degraded, I decided to open up the Bible for the first time in years, and I gave my life to Christ and have found in him my true satisfaction. I grew up in the church, and I went to Christian schools for almost all of my academic life, and I heard testimonies along these lines more times than I can even count. I heard them at family gatherings from my dad and my grandfather. I heard them at school chapel services, revival services, and Sunday morning worship services. And when I was younger, I was always in awe. I really didn't understand this dark world of sin and temptation that was described to me. And it was so amazing to hear about people that had had their lives completely changed by Jesus, finding all of their desires met in him. As I got a little bit older, I started to notice a bit of a difference. There were some people who had really great stories. They, they just lived these lives of wild debauchery, and then Jesus came and set them on a new path, and everything changed. And then there were people more like my grandfather who got saved from going to the movies or smoking and cursing or playing cards. 
And I, and I started to notice kind of there was a level, right? Some people had really great testimonies and other people had, you know, so-so ones. And I felt like I didn't have one at all. And then I would consider lives of people like my grandfather who encountered Jesus. And from that moment on, he never looked back. He was a missionary in Brazil for 40 years, building churches, Bible colleges, and seminary. His legacy extends to this day. My sister and her family are there in Brazil working with the seminaries and churches that my grandfather helped build. And I'd be filled with this sense of awe at how completely Jesus could change a life. But as I got older, I got into high school and college, I began to have some real troubles with some of the stories that I was hearing. All of these people that I would hear would get up and testify, and they would talk about how they had lived these wild lives and then done a complete 180 and lived for Jesus ever since. And it was as if, it was as if they, had never, they never questioned anything anymore. Everything was just totally different, and everything was fine. I had encountered Jesus from the time I was born. I could look back and remember praying the sinner's prayer at age three, And the sorts of classic, good, down-home American sins and temptations that most people talk about in church, I wasn't really faced with those at age three. The gospel, for me, was like a doorway that you walk through. And once you come through it, now you're expected to live this new life. The rules have changed, but the goal of success remained the same. And so when I went through, you know, adolescence... And suddenly I find myself surrounded by all these new temptations. There was sex and drugs and drinking and rock and roll all around me. I had no model on which to base my experience of temptation and failure. The sorts of sins that I was warned against were, after all, the sorts of things that people engaged in before they met Jesus, not after. In my mind, there were only two directions in life, directly toward God or directly away from him. The psalm that we're looking at this morning was written by and about and for people exactly like me. And if you're a Christian, this psalm is written by, about, and for you too. And if you're not a Christian, this psalm still has incredible meaning and an incredible bearing on your life. If we'll allow it, I think it will speak to all of us. This psalm has been edited and added to over generations. And so in a sense, it's not really clear who this psalm was, was directed to or for originally, but in another sense, it becomes absolutely clear. This psalm was written by and for God's people of all times. This is a song of our experience, and it's a prayer in our times of trouble, especially if those troubles are of our own making. What we'll see in this psalm is there are four vignettes, four little pictures of the experiences of God's people, the rhythms of our faith and failure. And if we're honest with ourselves, we'll probably find ourselves in all four of these pictures. The first is the wilderness. God's people have wandered through deserts figuratively and literally throughout generations. In the Exodus, which is the primary moment in the entire Old Testament, that the primary picture of God's redemptive work in all of the Old Testament, God's people rebel in the midst of their own salvation They have just been brought out of slavery and they rebel almost immediately. And their rebellion against doing things God's way leads them to wander in the desert for 40 years. Centuries later, after dozens of cycles of temptation, failure, crying out, and salvation, God's people are removed from the land for a time and they are made to be wanderers on the earth. 
living in a land not their own. And, and the final form of this psalm, as God's people through generations have, have built out the core, the core idea of this psalm, the final form was a call to worship for God's people that were in exile, God's people that had been brought back from exile. But the call doesn't stop there. We all are called to worship by this psalm. After all, how many of us, in an attempt to barter our own version of freedom, have found ourselves wandering in a desert? We seem to think in our culture that freedom is a lack of rules, a lack of restraints. But if freedom is a lack, then we will find ourselves in a wasteland with a thirst that cannot be quenched and a hunger that cannot be satisfied. Our quest for freedom and fulfillment on our own terms will always lead us to emptiness, where our lives ebb away. And yet, how many of us, how many of us who have been redeemed have set out from the city of God in search of elusive fulfillment elsewhere, leaving the message of our salvation behind, only to find ourselves lost and hungry? And if we tell ourselves that these are not the sorts of things that that proper Christians do, if we believe that God is not the kind of God who will spend energy on traitors or take time to search after wandering sheep, then we will die out in the desert, putting tape over our mouths, refusing to cry out. But if we believe that the love of God endures forever, if we can trust for just a moment that he loves us enough to bring us home, even though we just left home, then he will lead us in a straightway fashion directly back to the city of his love, a place for us to settle our wandering hearts in him. But our search for fulfillment doesn't always lead us to places that are too wide open, to places of wilderness like the people of Israel. No, it can also hem us in. And God's people have been imprisoned, both figuratively and literally throughout the ages. We can point to many of these imprisonments as being a result of of doing the right thing, preaching the gospel in times of trouble. What's being described here is a prison that results of our own wrongdoing. It's a prison of our own making, our own poor choices. In the exile, God's people were carted off. They were no longer free to wander the fields of their homeland. Many were imprisoned or forced to settle in cities they knew nothing about, and they had nothing but the darkness of their own guilt trapping them in prison. It's very easy for us to think and look at other groups of people, even if it's other groups of God's people, as if they are the ones that are filled with insanity. They are the ones whose rebellion cannot be quelled. And yet who of us, those who have already tasted the joy of Jesus' love, who of us have not fallen back into the dungeons of our sin and guilt and despair? For whatever insane reason, we leave the table of our father spitting in his face and we wrap ourselves back in the chains of sin and shame and the cycle of guilt and failure. Guilt and failure cloaks us in heavy darkness. And if we believe that God doesn't re-redeem, if we insist that he won't hear us, not again, then we will lock ourselves behind iron doors of guilt and we will allow the darkness of shame to smother us until we suffocate and die. But if we believe that God's loyal love is boundless, if for just a moment we can glimpse the way that he loved us in the death of Jesus, then we will cry out even while we're sitting in prisons of our own making. 
And he will cut in half doors of steel and rip apart our chains of guilt and failure. As God's people were brought out of their slavery in Egypt, despite all the wonders and miracles they saw God performing to bring them out with a mighty hand, the rebellion continued. They wandered in the desert, they were imprisoned, and they had sickness and affliction delivered to them as a way to try and shake them out of their rebellion. Many times the sin of the people throughout Israel's history led to their affliction. It would lead to such disease that they would lose all appetite for food and die malnourished in famine. Oftentimes, women in abusive relationships find it hard to break out. And and for friends or family on the periphery or those of us sitting outside of it, it seems insane that they would continue to go back in love to the very person that is hurting them, the very person that is ruining their lives. It seems like some sort of weird, insane masochism. If we had time, we could read from the Torah, the book that Moses wrote out for the people of Israel, for their life together, where he writes out for them blessings that will be theirs if they would follow God's way, if they would remain loyal to the way of life that he has set out for them, and curses that will come upon them if they continue in their rebellion. And yet time after time, we see them return to what the prophets refer to as stagnant water, warm, bitter poisonous bogs, and it seems insane to us. But who among us, though we have tasted of the freshest, most satisfying water, the water of life, the mercy of Jesus himself, who is not still turned away back to our abusive relationship with sin and guilt? Some of us have chemical addictions, others psychological addictions. Some of us are addicted to alcohol and narcotics, some to lust and rage, Some of us are addicted to control and pride and being well-liked by others. Others are addicted to shopping, having a successful career, or having the latest gadget. And these addictions bring us near to the gates of death. A drug like meth is a great self-deterrent. It's easy to see where addiction will lead, and their results aren't pretty. But many of us have addictions that haven't made life harder, not initially at least, not perceptively. But our various addictions to self, though more socially acceptable, are just as deadly and perhaps more so because rather than alert us to our impending death, they lull us to sleep. They carry us on feather mattresses to the gates of Sheol, to that dark, bottomless pit of death. And friends, if we believe that we must answer for our own addictions, that we are responsible not only for our guilt, but also for, to, to pull ourselves out of the cycle of desire and failure and guilt. If we believe that addicts only exist outside of the church, outside of God's people, if we believe that God himself has grown tired of our lapses and our failed promises, then we will see, keep silent. We will simply waste away to death, cloaked in despair. But if we believe that God's love reaches even to the gates of death if we trust just for a moment that God longs to hear from us as a loving parent, longs to hear from an an estranged child, if we can believe that God is the God of repeat offenders, that though we have wasted the glorious inheritance he has given us, spending it on our addiction, spending ourselves into a sickness and death, that he will actually run out after us like a mother concerned for no one but the child that she thought was lost. 
he will bring us back to his table. If we believe that he will actually run out after us to bring us back and feed us with his bounty, well, then we'll cry out, even in the midst of our own sin sickness, and he will send out his word and heal us and rescue us from the grave. But not all calamity can be tied directly to our culpability and sinful rebellion. The psalmist has made very clear that these first three pictures of where God's people end up are a result of their own sinful choices, being lost out in the wilderness, finding no freedom of your desire, being imprisoned, being sickened and weighed down in affliction by your own guilt. But then the psalmist gives us one more look at the world around us. And it sums up for us something that the book of Job makes quite clear. All of Job's friends think that his suffering is linked to some private sin, and yet all of them, when God shows up on the scene to discuss what's going on, are silenced. Throughout generations, God's people have been in storms and shipwreck. And sometimes, like Jonah, it's a result of their rebellion. But other times, like the disciples, it's not some sort of punishment, but it is a wake-up call nonetheless. I've been in the ocean several times in my life, but I have two really, really distinct memories. Once when I was five, my my family went to Brazil to go visit my grandparents who were missionaries there. And uh, when we were in Rio, we went down to the beach. And my dad, in a moment of playfulness, tossed me into the water. I can still feel the power of the waves just sort of tossing me about. And for the record, it tossed me directly back to my dad. I mean, he's not a crazy person, okay? But of course, I came out sputtering and crying and was completely shaken and didn't get in the ocean for the rest of that day. My second really, really strong memory of the ocean, I didn't cry, uh, but I was in college and I went down to Florida to visit my sister and we spent the day at the beach and I was having so much fun wandering out into the surf that I didn't realize how far I'd gone until the tide started to turn. And after about a half an hour of spending all of my energy trying to get back, trying to remember, to, you know, how you're supposed to walk parallel to the beach, something totally counterintuitive. I made it back in, and I was completely exhausted. And as those stories in my own life, so the psalmist is, is putting for us the ocean as a stand-in. It's a representation. It's a reminder of our littleness. Life, the universe, is vast and it cannot be leashed by us. A cancer diagnosis, the death of a loved one, the massacre of children, the loss of a job, the wreckage of relationships, these things are not ours to be controlled. And the harder we try to clamp down, the more exhausted we become, and eventually we realize it's like fighting the ocean. And if we believe that life is ours to be controlled, if we follow the voices in our head and the voices of our culture, that we are the captains of our own fate, if we continue to believe that we can solve our own problems, when we're faced with a storm big enough, we will melt like wax, stagger like drunks, and literally go out of our minds. But if we can believe that we are not in control, if we can open up our grasp right as the storm tosses us about, And if we can trust that God is God, even in the storm, if we can admit that we never have and never will leash him, that we cannot hem him in, and if we can bring ourselves to trust that he is good and full of love, if we can believe even for a moment 
that he is the kind of God who would enter into the storm for our sakes, then we'll cry out. Even as the storm is at its fiercest, we will open up our hands and release our grasp in prayer to him, and he will still the storm to a whisper and guide us on calm seas to a haven. Friends, this psalm, the book of Job, the entire scriptures point out something that has caused many, many people to fall into doubt and despair. And it is that God does not answer our questions of why, especially after tragedy, when we finally come around to asking the questions, why? He does not answer those questions by offering some logical proof about his goodness and existence in a dark and terrifying world. No, he does something far greater than that. He is born into a world where five-year-olds are murdered, whether in Bethlehem or Newton. He is then murdered himself, and he brings life and resurrection to the murdered and the murderer alike. This is a God who can turn flowing rivers into a desert and who can turn desert into streams of fresh water and cause springs of cool water to burst out of sun-parched ground. I guess there's a chance that I'm in the minority, that my experience of the Christian life is not lodged in the middle of all other experiences. But my hunch is that most of us have stumbled and staggered through this new life, that many of us have wandered in a wasteland thinking we'd find freedom. Many of us have re-imprisoned ourselves in shackles of our own making, and many of us have been battered by a storm that we cannot control and tragedy that we do not understand. But all of us are faced with the choice. We can remain silent or cry out. Some here this morning have never cried out to God, or perhaps you have ceased long ago. Perhaps we believe that our self-imprisonment is too final. Perhaps we're convinced that we have wandered too far afield from God's grace or that the storm of life has raged around us too long and we shut our mouths tight, refusing to cry out, refusing to tell the story of God's redemption. If that's you this morning, my question to you, and I mean this sincerely, is where else can you go? What else can you turn to? If the storm of life is overwhelming you, what will you do to outrun it? The imprisonment of your guilt and addiction is marching you toward death. If it's wrapped around you like chains of steel that you cannot cut off, how else will you get free? If your search for fulfillment has led you to a wilderness that is impossible to navigate, what other choice do you have? After all, it is not the self-righteous or successful or resourceful that God barrels after. It's the hungry. It's those imprisoned in darkness, those camping outside death's door who cry out to him. Those are the people that God comes in to rescue. Friends, if you're sitting in that position this morning, don't be confused. God knows that he's your last phone call. He knows that you have tried everything else, and that's exactly what these four vignettes describe to us, where we end up after trying it on our own. So don't let fear or embarrassment keep you from crying out to him now because his love is more loyal than any amount of failure you can carry. To others of you, to those that are crying out and have cried out, I say keep telling the story of your redemption. 
Tell the story of your re-redemption and the time after that and the time after that. Let God's faithfulness in the midst of your failure become the core of your identity. But to those who have fallen into the pit of addiction and guilt over and over, and to those who this morning feel as if the storm has been kicking you in the teeth for too long, to all those whose spiritual voices are hoarse from crying out, only to be met with exhausting silence to you and to myself, I say, the story is not over. And though our individual crisis may be reduced to a whisper, as a community, we will cry out together and we will say, Jesus, you have the words of life. Where else can we go? I've got to believe in you or live in death. Let's pray together. God, what glorious, joyful news it is that you are the God of repeat offenders. That you are a God of people who, though we have tasted of your love and mercy, we continue to live so much of our lives in the wilderness or in prisons of our own making. But it is such wonderful news to know that you will take us back, that you will rescue us again, even when we have brought trouble upon ourselves. And you will rescue this world from the darkness that is collapsing in on itself. I ask that you would bring us to your table now in the hope of that great love that never ends. Amen.